welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. David Schechter. He's a physician in Culver City, California, with a family and sports medicine practice. He has a unique non-surgical approach to sports medicine and is also the author of Think Away Your Pain, The Mind-Body Workbook, and The Mind-Body Workbook for Teens. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, David, welcome back to the show. We did a podcast um, that we aired last week, and David is a family, family doctor, and I mentioned to David earlier, I think family physicians and primary care are basically the best people to treat chronic pain because it's a multi-pronged problem and it's got diet, exercise, sleep, all sorts of variables in there. So you can't just treat it from one perspective. And David, in my from the time I got exposed to this idea of mind-body medicine, David Schechter's name came up with Dave Clark, Howard Schumer, John Strax, Dave Schechter all come out of the same sentence. So he's been at this for a long time, lots of experience, lots of perspective. He's written several books. And uh, David, you want to share with us the books that you wrote really quickly, then we'll get on to the actual treatment part of things. Well, thanks for uh, having me here again. And uh, yeah, I wrote the Mind Body Workbook, and now I've written the Mind Body Workbook Volume 2. I called it Volume 2 rather than Revised Edition because you can do them in either order. We set it up actually so that you could start with Volume 2 and do Volume 1 or vice versa. So just, just to mention that. Think Away Your Pain is my book that describes the the condition and the treatment pro- approach in, in, in great detail. So that's a book book that you can also listen to on Audible or have on Kindle. And um, I have a, a mind-body workbook for teens, which is uh, generally designed to be part of a school curriculum that we talked a lot about a little bit last week, but it, it's, it's a tool for teaching teenagers how to journal. Because I feel like that's one skill that if they learn in, at a young age, it can benefit them for the rest of their lives. So it's a shorter book. It's just a uh, like a 40-page workbook, the mind-body workbook for teens, and, and uh, very inexpensive. And I'm actually going to be giving it away free as part of the school curriculum if your teen is part of a, a school that's teaching this curriculum. But anyway, thanks for letting me mention the books. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is I'm curious about, because we talked about in the first podcast about what a big problem chronic pain is um, with teens these days. It seems to be more prevalent than in the past. And, you know, maybe it's a sensory overload, the um, social media, the endless input, you know, trying to keep up with things, the cyberbullying, et cetera. And, you know, you mentioned a term called, you know, teen suicide is a big issue. The term is called deaths of despair. So the teens are in trouble. And then we, of course, you see this different gun violence coming up, people in the late teens and early 20s. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot going on in these kids' brains. But you, we, one point I want to emphasize is that you pointed out that it's, it's more challenging teen, treating a teen because their abstract thinking hasn't even developed until, until they're like 16 or 17 years old. People forget that. Absolutely. That, you know, you have to find different ways of relating to people at different ages. And I think that you know, a theme that I've heard through some of your work is certainly reducing fear and reducing danger signals. And I think that that works at any age. That works in someone who's 80 or someone who's 18, maybe even someone who's eight, who's dealing with traumatic experiences. And so providing 
you know, a calming influence when you, when you work with a, a teenager with chronic pain or other mental health issues and putting together the right people for them to relate to. I, I tend to use very young psychotherapists if I'm working with an adolescent patient because I, I, I do like to work as a team. I often see people individually, but I also uh, will refer them to psychotherapists in the LA area or sometimes elsewhere. So finding the right people is important. And we talked about you know, relatability. We talked about calming the nervous system by, by just using your own personality, your own ex relatability to the, to the teen as a way to calm them down and lower their fear level. I know that you're also someone who, where, where appropriate, shares your own personal experiences. So I can tell a teenager that when I was 16, I remember having nervous stomachs when I would you know, go out to a social event because I had some social anxiety type of stuff. They didn't call it that then. They just said Dave's shy, but right. um, I had some social anxiety. And then I had knee pain when I was 21, which is not that much past uh, your teenage years. So sometimes sharing your own personal experiences briefly and the way you got out of that can be helpful. You don't want to make the office visit about yourself, but it's okay to share these things if they can be therapeutic for the patient. So these are all ways that I try to relate to people. I also find that, you know, as a, as a family doctor, you, you, you deal with all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. So the fact that I can talk about a lot of different subjects with a lot of different people is good. Um, and, you know, you can talk about sports with some teenagers. You can talk about some music. You know, fortunately, I've got a son who's in music. So he keeps me a little bit up to date on some of the music stuff that I otherwise wouldn't know anything about. So I can mention a couple of music uh, things. So you try to find ways to relate to people, calm them down, because the, the visit is part of the therapy. Correct. The experience that people had with my mentor, John Sarno, when they went to his office, they left feeling more confident that they were okay. And I hope to, and I'm not the same personality that he was, and I'm not the same personality that you are, but I hope that people feel, leave the office feeling like Dr. Schechter knows what's going on and I'm gonna be all right. And that's a calming effect. So I think that whereas you can get into more abstract discussions with someone in their thirties or forties, especially someone who's really interested in doing some of the reading that we advise, you were asking me before about what resources, we'll get back into that a little more, but what do I advise the homework and stuff? But the, um, you know, we get just that level of, I've examined you, I've looked at your imaging, I don't see anything worrisome. You've got these tender points that are often indicative of soft tissue, myofascial pain that's due to tension in your body, and uh, you're going to be okay. You know, just that you have to leave with that because a lot of doctors, and this is one of the troubling things. I know you found as a surgeon that all the inappropriate surgeries trouble the heck out of you. I'll tell you what also troubles the heck out of me. It probably did you too. All the things that doctors say that are anti-healing. Right. Almost every day I hear somebody saying to me, this woman came in today with, she said, this doctor said, one day you'll probably need a hip operation. So a hip replacement. So I, she's 56. So I said to her, that statement has absolutely no value to you. And I'll tell you why. Literally everybody in our office, including me, my secretary who's 30 and my assistant who's 22, we might all need hip operations one day. Right. But what good does that do us? What, what, how is that actionable information? All it does is lead you to fear. Right. So right. I said to her, so I want you to take home from the visit with him was, you don't need a hip operation now. 
Right. And I'm going to tell you, you don't need one for another five to 10 years. Beyond that, none of us knows anything. And right. so it's ridiculous to try to be a prophet. Too many orthopedic surgeons, this is your specialty, I'm sorry to criticize it, but I know you do as much criticism of it as any, think that they're prophets rather than physicians. Right. Physicians are good at about telling what's going on now. We're not very good about predicting in the long-term future, and we should stay away from it completely. And so all of these things can be beneficial to just calm people down and tell them that they're going to be okay and obviously take their problems seriously. So how much time do you spend with a patient, whether adolescent or an adult, on the first visit? I, I'm faster than many people in how I'm able to get information, but I spend at least 45 minutes, often up to an hour. I know that there are physicians in our mind-body national community who spend even longer and I'm sure there are some that spend less. I mean, I'm also trying to uh, work with people's health insurance so I don't uh, you know, have to make them pay too much out of pocket and stuff. So, but I, I'm saying that because that limits a little bit the time. I mean, I, but I think an hour or 45 minutes is enough time for me to get into. 20 minutes is not enough time. If mm -hmm. I find somebody, if somebody's scheduled for a follow-up visit for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, and I realize they have a mind-body disorder, I'll start the process and say, here, do some homework and I'll see you again and we'll talk about it more. I'm sure you did a lot of that in your work because you had often probably had a large volume of people you had to see in a day uh, as part of the preoperative assessments and things. So I bring them back, but we need that time. I like to have that 45 minute block or longer to not feel rushed, for them not to feel rushed and to be able to ask those questions that we ask in mind-body medicine that we did not ask as much in medical school, right? It's not just about what made it worse and what made it better. It's about what's going on in your life. It's right. about what was your childhood like? What was your adolescence like? That type of stuff. Well, I mean, we could talk a long time about this one because it's maybe, maybe, I mean, I have two visions for my life. One of them is just get medicine connected back to the science. I mean, a lot of stuff we learn in medical school and we're on this structural rabbit hole and mainstream medicine just doesn't have any data already for what we do, for what we do. It just mm -hmm. isn't there. The second thing is, I is that each person is incredibly unique, and the doctor-patient relationship is important not to understand the problem. I mean, you're making major decisions without understanding the problem, but the relationship itself is actually a healing modality. And without that basic healing modality of a nice relationship with your physician or a provider in any medical world, the rest of it doesn't really matter hardly. It's such a basic, people think, well, it's sort of luxury. It sounds good, feels nice. But my goodness, I would, if you build a skyscraper, there's years of planning. If you're going to build a house, there's lots of planning. We make decisions in spine surgery on a 15-minute visit that actually destroys people's lives for the rest of their lives, for goodness mm -hmm. sake. So first of all, time allows you to understand the problem, understands the patient, this interaction between the patient and their stresses allows them to be either feel safe or unsafe. But if you don't feel safe with your doctor, who do you feel safe with? I mean, a lot of times, not, not your classmates, you know, parents may not feel safe with them. I mean, you got to feel safe with your doctor and people want to feel safe so badly, they'll believe the doctor, even when the doctor isn't actually acting in a safe way. But that, there's not that many doctors that spend 45 minutes to an hour talking to their patients anymore. Yeah, it's really it's really necessary. And I, I think that you're also making an argument for continuity of care, meaning that even beyond mind-body medicine, um, we benefit from having it's the same doctor for five or 10 years and not switching because of an insurance plan or because of right. 
some other thing, you know, that continuity, the people I know in my family medicine practice for 10 or 15 years, you know, the visit is so effective because I know the person so well that there's a lot of things I don't have to check boxes. I know them in their, in my head and I know them emotionally for so many years that I can really be effective. Whereas somebody you, you first meet, it takes a little longer to, to get to that level. So I think you're speaking to the chronic pain area and the mind-body area. You're also speaking just to the, the, some of the unfortunate things going on in healthcare. Right. So with so I've spent 45 minutes an hour with you on the patient right now, and you've got the information you need about who I am, what I'm going on. What, what let's say I have irritable bowel syndrome, which is a pretty classic mind-body symptom or irritable bladder. What what are some things that you do to help people heal? What, what's your basic how's, what's your basic approach compared to an average family practitioner? What, what's your general approach? Especially for these consultations that are oriented toward uh, finding a solution for chronic symptoms, whether it be irritable bowel, back pain, arm pain, migraines, et cetera. I really try to tie it together in those last 10 minutes or so. One thing I try to make sure I'm looking them in the eye and saying, you have, you know, I use the term TMS. You can use the term MBS. You can use the term neuroplastic pain. It doesn't really matter what term you use, but they need to hear from the physician, you have this, right? So I'm right. very clear about making eye contact. I'm not looking at the computer and typing. Or I'm looking at them and saying, you have this condition. So it's important for them to hear that. And then I'm, I've become over the years very organized. I'm kind of a systematic person in general, but I've become organized. I have a TMS resource guide. It's two-sided. It looks a little bit like a menu. And there's different sections on a menu, right? There's an appetizer and there's a main course and it's that kind of thing. So I have five or six books listed on the top of the thing. David Hanscom's book is one of those books, Back in Control. And depending on the patient and their specific needs, because I personalize this, I don't check off all six boxes, right? If it's a spine case where there's been some confusion, et cetera, I go, read Hanscom's book. He was a spine surgeon who got into this stuff and read that book. If it's about GI stuff, it might be, check Dave Clark's book off. He's one of the six books that's listed. Obviously, I favor my own books because we're going to be speaking the same language at follow-up and all that. So right. I'll check off, check off, think away your pain. But that's part one. Part two, on that same resource guide, I want you to start journaling 10 or 15 minutes a night. You can do it in a blank notebook, but you've also got the Mind-Body Workbook, Volume 1 and Volume 2 that I've written. And uh, I'd recommend, if, if, you know, if you're comfortable with that, do it in the guided journal. If you prefer to do it in a blank notebook, do it in a blank notebook, it, however you want to do it. And we can talk a little more about techniques. Then we go on from that to Here's some podcasts you might want to listen. You know, obviously I favor some podcasts that I've been on because again, I'm their doctor, but I check off a few podcasts they can listen to. Um, toward the bottom of the page, I have apps listed and you, you know some of the apps, Curable, Menda, Ivo is a new one. Um, and I'm blanking on one more app. But anyway, there's four apps. Well, well David, there's my app. Your app, of course, the doc app. <laughs> my so app. how could I forget your app? All right. And then, well, and then, and then there's Think Up. There's an affirmation app that I contributed to that I like. Um, right. So I can check off an app or two. I say, you know, this, this app. Might... Now, not everybody needs to do everything, but some people are more computer focused. Some people are more readers. Some people like Audible. Some people like podcasts. So I get a sense of that in the interview. Then I flip the page. And on the top of that is a few movies. And I might recommend All the Rage. You know, if, if I think that uh, spouses won't typically read a book for you, but they'll often 
uh, make some popcorn and, and watch a movie with you for an hour and 10 minutes. So you can watch uh, All the Rage or This Might Hurt or whatever movie I happen to think is appropriate for that patient. And then I have some other, other resources beyond that. I have a psychological resources. So I have three options for them. I said, you can keep, definitely do your journaling and that's a psychological treatment. I said, you can come to, um, I have, I, I lead a group uh, class on Tuesday evenings with a uh, clinical psychologist. You might want to come to that group. Some people like the idea of groups. Some people shy away from that. I totally am comfortable with whatever they decide. And I have individual resources and I'm, I'm you know, California, Los Angeles specifically has become a very deep area for clinical, uh, for t uh, mind body psychotherapy. Um, and many of those relationships I developed over the years and others were built on by Alan Gordon, of course. So I have individuals that I can refer to them and I, and I try to individualize that as well. Um, so I, I have sections, right? So I see the, and I don't want to overwhelm people because a lot of people right. give them too much to do. It's no good. Right. So I pick, I pick and choose for each person. And I go, we'll talk about this more. Don't, don't do anything more. Stay away from the general internet. Probably one of the best advice I can give. Right. This curated internet that I've pointed out, you can look at this app or you can look at this podcast or you can read this book. And then let's meet again in a few weeks and we'll, and we'll talk three weeks or four weeks and we'll see how things are going and I'll, I'll help to guide you. So that's kind of my process. So it sounds like you take a similar approach to mine in that I can spend eight hours a day with a given patient. They're not going to get better. I mean, they pretty much have to do it on their own, almost by definition. They've got to sit, they got to take control, take responsibility. And I get a little pressure because I think that patients shouldn't have to take as much responsibility as they do because there's so many things being done that are really damaging. So unfortunately, patients have to take control at a level that probably historically wouldn't be that necessary. But we're throwing risky procedures at people without data, and these are risky, expensive, and actually can harm people. So it sounds like you take a similar approach as I do as far as giving homework, guiding them along a pathway, seeing them back, regarding them, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like they're basically taking charge of their own care. Well, that's a very important part. I mean, I'm sure you remember from your days treating people in the work comp system and things that they're very passive in that system. They're kind of shuttled around from person to person and often they end up with a surgery or something. And so the, the very act of the patient taking responsibility and being empowered to be an active participant is a key part of them getting better. So openness is important and a willingness to take a responsibility and, and, and take, take action on your own. I also emphasize, and I, I'm sure you did this as well, but I also emphasize physical activity. And I think this is underemphasized in the mind-body world, especially by psychologists, not, not, not to in any way criticize psychologists. I love them. <laughs> but part of healing is moving. And I emphasize this with everybody. I have people who haven't done any activity at all. I say, well, listen, tomorrow you're going to walk three minutes. And then the next day, add one minute. And then add a minute a day or every other day until you're walking 30. And you, I, you wouldn't believe how, how high a percentage of these people are working, walking 30 minutes by the time I see them again. But that's, these are people who did nothing. And we're told very often by physical therapists or by chiropractors or by surgeons, uh, rest. Don't do anything. Right. right. Actually, you emphasize sleep a lot, I know. And I probably don't emphasize that as much as you do. But I emphasize activity a lot, which is you've got to move the body. Right. You don't get better by lying on your couch. You, get, you can lie on your couch to read the 
the book, but you after you get up from that, you need to go out and move. And it doesn't have to be vigorous. It can be walking around the house. It can be walking around the block. It can be uh, stretching a little bit. It can be going for a swim, ride, ride a bicycle for eight minutes and come back. Some type of physical activity. I really emphasize that. And if somebody starts going through your homework, I know this is an impossible question to answer. You're obviously seeing successes because people are, you keep people coming back and you, and you keep creating materials that are evolved to help people along the pathway. But um, I'll just say a concrete statement is that chronic pain is a solvable problem with engagement and learning the tools. So my assessment is somebody decides to truly engage, be serious about it, really embed the tools that they, they're probably well over 80% chance of getting healed. If they don't want to learn the tools, it's probably close to 0%. So just in the ballpark of 100 people come to your office, what percent actually engage? Uh, you know, how do people do? Well, I have I have some data on that from a from a uh, you know a study that I published years ago, uh, and I also have you know followed up with a lot of people over the years. I get emails from people. You know, it's funny. Some people I don't see back. I see them twice, and I don't see them anymore. I'm, I'm not really sure if they're success or not. And then three years later, they'll they'll refer somebody and so and, and the person says, oh, you changed his life. Well, I didn't even know I changed his life because he didn't right. come back again because he was better after two visits. Right. But if you're, if you, there's two populations in terms of people who are not at all aware of TMS, mind-body syndrome, neuroplastic pain, people who are not aware of this, I think that I get at least 50% engagement in my office. And then of those people that engage, I get 70 plus percent success. Right. In terms of people who come in already interested, meaning they've heard David Hanscom's podcast or they've read Howard Schubiner's book and they, they're in Los Angeles or they're in Southern California and they come to see me, I have higher than a 75% long-term success rate, depending on how you define that, right? So some people make 100% recovery right? and some people make an 80% recovery. Now, 80% recovery with no medications, no surgery, nothing invasive is still remarkable. And we are never guaranteed that life will be free of aches and pains. In fact, the yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous logo or, or motto is the aches and pains of being sober. And I talk to people about that phrase because there are people who are on medications and other things that suppresses their emotions, that suppresses their life, and they're not having any pain. But when they get off of that medication and things, they're having some discomfort. Well, the aches and pains of being sober. You know, we're dealing right. with stuff every day. Okay. We get angry, we get upset, we get aches, but we move on. You know, we keep, we stay active. Right. So success is, um, you know, there's, I, I never tell anybody there's a hundred percent success rate because there's a lot of variables in terms of what that patient is willing to engage with, how deep they're willing to go. Um, it's not all on the patient. Maybe I'm not as effective with some people as I am with others. Maybe the psychologist I send you to is not a perfect fit for you for some reason, but there's a very high success rate, and this is not dangerous to you. People learn about themselves, as you, I, I'm sure, did at 37 when you went through your process. You 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 get personal growth right. out of a out of a medical treatment. You don't get that out of a spinal surgery or out of a injection of a shoulder. You get that out of this work. So that's the exciting thing: is empowering patients, seeing people learn and grow teaching them skills that they can use as you, as, as it were on a desert Island without any other 
uh, intervention available. Um, and, uh, you know, it's good work. It's, uh, it has, uh, obviously it's challenges and you're dealing with uh, people's emotions and, and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's good work. It's fun work. And it's uh, gratifying when, when we get uh, uh, good successes, which we often do. Yeah, no, it's been really, I mean, I, I feel privileged to be able to offer surgery as an option for patients. It's nice to have that in the tool bag, but in some ways it's more gratifying to see somebody get better without surgery because there's no risk to them at all. Save society some money. And I think the part that is hard to put into words, how complete a lot of these healings are. I mean, these people go from no hope to not only hope, but it's an incredibly vibrant life. It just changes dramatically. So it's pretty darn satisfying in the big picture. So David, thank you very, very much. Um, it's great to have you as a resource in the LA basin area. And I know you're connected to a lot of other resources in the area. And I could be a little delusional here, but it's my sense is that the, that the work that we're doing is getting some traction, at least in the public domain. It's not so much the medical world. I think it's getting a lot more traction in the public domain. And as you say, we still face the challenge of getting into medical schools or residency programs or, or that sort of thing. And physicians just seem so closed-minded. In fact, many of my patients will say, why is it that physicians are so unwilling to learn anything after they finish their residency. Most people right. in other fields continue to learn. Right, absolutely. No, it's There's a close, just a closed-mindedness. You know, I just want to do right. the things that I was trained in and go home and do something else. I don't know. It's I weird. know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. David, any final thoughts on the day here? Any final words of wisdom to our audience? Well, think psychologically. Um, seek understanding. Stay physically active. And um, keep listening to David Hanscom's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't pay him to say that, by the way. Um, well, David, thank you very, very much. And uh, it's always great to see you. And uh, hopefully, get, hopefully get up to Los Angeles soon. I just realized that this is my fifth year of retirement, which is mind boggling. It goes by really fast. Anyway, so it's great to see you. Nice to see you as well. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Schechter, for being on the program today and explaining the process he uses to treat chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.